but you can see this vitriol and this vehemence that he was building up against not only the girls who he really didn't approach at all. There's so many stories near from across the aisle at high school in Harvard, at uh, Michigan. He's just staring at these young women and maybe they'd smile as they get up and walk away. And he'd go months and just have this fantasy about them. And then he never would approach them. And then he'd see her talking to some other guy and he'd want to kill the guy. This is where the seeds of all this uh, of all this anxiety and hatred were, uh, you know, began their fomentation process. True crime on Red Alert. Right along with host Bianca Crespo and former FBI agents Ray Carr and James R. Fitzgerald for an intimate perspective on gripping high-profile cases. This is Cold Red. Hello and welcome to Cold Red. I'm producer Bianca Crespo and I'm joined by James R. Fitzgerald, an American criminal profiler, forensic linguist, and author. He's a retired FBI agent, best known for capturing the Unabomber. I'm also joined by Raymond J. Carr, criminal profiler, teacher, author, and retired FBI agent, who is most known for the capture of the most prolific bank robber in history. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Hey, Bianca. Great to be back. Hi, Bianca. Thanks for having us again. Nice to see you both. I hope you all had a very restful spring break slash Easter weekends. Um, I know since we last spoke, we've been getting a lot of messages on social media uh, regarding our curious viewers and listeners. And they want to know, you know, all the pressing questions like, what do you two eat for breakfast? If you prefer white or wheat. Um, so yeah, how about we start there? Which do you prefer? Well, let me start out. I'm wearing an older shirt. I'm going to explain that in a few minutes, but I'm wearing it for a purpose. I only wear it once or twice a year. And, uh, Unlike Ray, who wears older shirts for, for different reasons. Jim, we're just thankful you have a shirt on today. Well, we won't go with what we're thankful you have on today. Okay. Very good. But anyway, uh, this has some uh, uh, some uh, memories for me back from the Unibomb case. Some of you may be able to see it, but I'll explain it a bit later. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, if you're really serious about that. But I get these questions from fans, too, and that, that that's cool. Um, I do like breakfast in the morning. They said it's the best or the most important meal of the day. I usually have a half bagel with different spreads on it. And people are surprised about this. Um, I'm a former police officer and, of course, FBI agent. Um, I do not drink coffee. I have never had a cup of coffee in my entire life. As a little kid, I sipped my parents. Ew, that tastes awful. And I just never developed a taste for it. So I like a good 16 ounces of juice in the morning. I guess the, uh, the sugar gets my system going. And then I do have a – I always have a cold iced tea for lunch. So that's where I get my uh, – I guess my midday caffeine going. So uh, <clears throat> as far as we'll stick with the morning starts for now. And uh, and that's basically it for me. I'm also, when I do my workouts, I'm a late afternoon workout person. I think Ray and I are opposite in that regard. I don't like morning workouts. I've done them, but uh, not my uh, not my preferred time to uh, get sweaty or swim a mile in the pool like I've been doing lately. Ray, tell us about your life. Jim, do you really get that many laps in your bathtub? <laughs> It's a big bathtub. <laughs> big bathtub, Jim. Well, I start my day out at about 4.30 in the morning, and I go to the gym, and I do a CrossFit workout, whatever the workout is for the day. Usually, I get home probably by 7, and then uh, I'll either have a bowl of cereal, Special K, 
or I'll have eggs. And I usually like rye toast versus wheat or white. So uh, I'll, sometimes I'll put jam on it. Other times I won't. But uh, I'm usually a four or five day a week guy that likes to hit the gym. And then, but I eat every morning. And like Jim, I agree uh, that the uh, breakfast is the most important meal. And the other thing is, like Jim, I've never had a cup of coffee. Real t- you too. I'm surprised. Wow. That's impressive. And here we are doing this podcast uh, a little bit early for us, 9 a.m., um, but I think we're both holding up pretty good so far without the uh, caffeine that 99.9% of the rest of the country uh, instills in themselves every morning. Bianca, are you a coffee drinker? I actually am not. I uh, used to drink coffee, but it's been, I think, five years now since I gave up caffeine altogether. Um, I guess we're all just naturally energetic. Me too. But that's great. Like speaking of odds, I suppose facts that most people don't know about us. I would love to segue into the Unabomber and perhaps Fitz, you could give us some more information regarding what most people don't know about him. And you can also go into detail about the shirt you're wearing today as well. That was quite a segue. Um, I have to think if uh, if Kaczynski drank coffee or not, because, of course, he lived in the cabin and uh, he lived off of nature. So I think coffee was a rare treat for him. He would sometimes bicycle into uh, uh, Lincoln and stop at the general store and treat himself sometimes to coffee and then brew that up in the morning. Um so, yeah, we decided to um, uh, kind of spend a little bit of time on this, tying into some other of the recent uh, violent crimes in this country. And uh, I pulled out some information that I kind of uh, kept behind for a while. I did mention some of this in the book. But, yeah, we'll start with the shirt. This was a shirt that um, I, I made up at a, a in Helena, Montana. Um, we had a whole team of agents out there and analysts uh, after Kaczynski's arrest in April of 1996. Fitz, could you tell us in detail just for the people listening as well what's on the shirt? Yeah, um, I'm looking at it backwards, but I'm pretty sure I recall what it says because I helped design this. Uh, we arrived, I think. No, no, we came, we arrested. No, we came, we arrested. I'm going to start this again. Maybe I need some coffee. <laughs> And if you're from Philly, you say coffee. If you're from the rest of the country, you say coffee. We came, we analyzed, we arrested. And there's the Golden Gate Bridge, San Francisco, where the UTF was located. Uh, There's some woods and there's a cabin and a mountain, kind of a cabin on a hill. And the UTF, Unabomb Task Force, uh, analytical team. And it's all stitching, too. Yeah, it was really nice. And I made about 30 of these. I think I picked up half the cost. Everyone else chipped in like $10. And um, and after all these years, uh, I only wore it once or twice a year in the house. And um, so I thought I'd wear it one more time. I'm going to cut this out and put it in a shadow box along with some other um, memorabilia from Unibom as well as others. But uh, it's, it's time to uh, kind of put some of these shirts to pasture. But I want to put it on one more time for our fans and our viewers uh, this week. So... Um, yeah, I also dug out, um, this was, uh, it's a copy, obviously, photocopy, and sorry, Ray, no other pictures inside, but this is, uh, uh, I think, an early 95 
I'm not sure I can even read the date. No, no, this is November 94 date uh, of Playboy magazine and um, about the Unibomb case in which a number of the agents on board, you know, the supervisors were interviewed about the Unibomb case. And um, people may not believe this, but there actually were decent articles in Playboy back in the day, along with some pictures. But um, um, when this was published, within a few days, maybe a week or two, um, Thomas Moser was killed in uh, North Caldwell, New Jersey, by a, a bomb sent by the Unabomber. And when I got to the, uh, the task force about six months later, the agents, I was the profiler, the behaviorist, they sat down with me individually, uh, collectively, but a lot of them felt guilty that maybe this interview and some of the things they said about the Unabomber in it could have caused him to then lash out and take um, one more victim. Now, there was even a victim after that in Sacramento, uh, a, a forestry lobbyist in April of uh, 95. So uh, these agents were really bothered by this article. Did they do the right thing? And 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 we knew that the Unabomber needed months to plan for these things. These, these devices, these improvised explosive devices were so intricate, he couldn't just build these in a weekend. He needed time. So so this bombing was very much planned, and the article had nothing to do with it. It was really a coincidence that uh, this article was published in November of 94, and uh, and the bombing occurred then too, but they were totally unrelated. Uh, I mean, the same topic, more or less, but the, the Unabomber did not see this article um, when, um, uh, when he decided to target Thomas Moser in North Caldwell. Interestingly, and a lot of people forget this, so the two rival magazines back then, we'll say men's magazines, were Playboy and Penthouse. Uh, Penthouse played an interesting role, and Bob Guccione, the then publisher, uh, because the New York Times at first wasn't going to um, publish, or, or at least they were hedging on whether they would publish the manifesto or not. When Penthouse magazine jumped in like with a half-page ad, in the New York Times, to the Unabomber. It said, Dear Unabomber, because they knew the Unabomber was reading the New York Times. If New York Times doesn't want to publish your manifesto, we will do it, and we will gladly do it. In fact, we'll give you a monthly column. We'll let you write whatever you want, unedited. We don't care. We want to hear from you. you we think you're an interesting person, blah, blah, blah. So the Unabomber, being a good chess player that he is, wrote back to Penthouse Magazine you know, a month or so later, I said, we'll consider your offer if the New York Times or the Washington Post doesn't publish us because they're like legitimate, you know, media sources. You're kind of not. But if we do go with you, we reserve the right. He always used plural pronouns, although we knew it was one person. We reserve the right to bomb to kill one more person. So here's the chess game. So, of course, this letter goes public. Guccione puts it out there. The FBI gets it. New York Times gets it. So now the New York Times says, well, we don't publish this guy. There's blood on our hands because someone else is going to be killed. So ultimately, they did publish. That's a whole other story that people can read my books or watch uh, A Journey to the Sun of the Mind or watch uh, you know, Man on Unabomber and figure all those parts out. But just a little, um, some little tidbits of information there between Playboy and Penthouse and how they played sort of integral roles uh, in the Unabomb case, directly or indirectly. And, uh, and how that pales uh, and, and played out in the case itself. And I find the irony, too, of 
his involvement with Playboy and uh, Penthouse in that respect is uh, hearing about this fact that he was involuntarily celibate, I believe, or can you correct me? Um, up until his incarceration, I believe, until he had a girlfriend. I'm going to hold another prop up. Um, this is like an inch and a half thick binder that I put together with a fellow special agent, Kathy Puckett, who was part of the Unibomb Task Force. And we were commissioned. Actually, this was my idea to do this. Kathy jumped on board right away. And then we uh, got together with Dr. Park Dietz, who was the uh, forensic psychiatrist hired by the UTF. And this uh, this is a little side study we did. Females of interest written about by Ted Kaczynski in the Ted documents and the cabin documents. And what that means is uh, all the letters and writings that his, his family turned over to us. They were the TED documents. The cabin documents were the 1,000 separate documents we found in the cabin uh, after his arrest. And they were just chock full of behavioral and autobiographical information about Kaczynski the, himself. These were written because he never, um, he never thought they'd see the light of day. And these are just ways he occupied himself on cold winter days when it was below zero degrees and he had a fire going in his uh, electricity-free cabin and uh, water, you know, no water in his cabin, et cetera. So um, this is what he did to occupy himself. So there are some interesting readings in here that we can get into a little bit. I like to bring Ray in. I mean, I think we've seen Ray in some of these uh, recent shootings and killings, be they mass, be they singular, be they serial. Um, it seems there's some kind of a sexual dysfunction going on. And I want to be careful. I don't want to insult anybody or, or categorize anyone negative. I don't really care about killers that much. But I, I just, it, I mean, homicides are committed for certain reasons, you know, greed, you know, sex, uh, maybe self-defense, war, uh, and there's a few others. But it seems some of these ones that are difficult to describe, some of these ones that are... Uh, that seemed to be just uh, off, you know, off the chart in terms of of something that makes any kind of sense at all to regular people. Um, if, if mostly younger people under thirty, and um, you know, maybe arguably in the prime of their lives, but you do a lot of research between the mental health issue and also, but we're seeing sometimes sexual issues with these folks. Do you have any early uh, input on that, Ray? You're kind of right on board with the sexual component to this. You see a lot of these individuals as they were children or younger, their sexual abuse played a part in their lives. But like in every, every one of these mass shooters or violent offenders, it always comes back to that point where there's a grievance. There's something that is perpetrating the reason for why they're doing what they're doing. And a lot of times it's not really known to law enforcement until we catch the individual and have the opportunity to sit down and speak with them. Now you talk about the Unabomber. What was his reason for what he did? And if you look back in his background, uh, from what I've read and having conversations with you, Jim, is that he was a subject uh, of an experiment while he was in college 
and some of the things that occurred prior to that. If you were to go back into a lot of the lives of these violent offenders, there's always seems to be a sexual component. Now, we're not saying that it's the main cause, but there is a sexual component to this that drives at least part of the behavior that they're getting involved in. But it still comes back to that grievance. What is it that set them over, you know, the line? What caused them to cross that line? And the problem is, unlike Kaczynski, most of these other mass shooters or killers or serial offenders, some of them don't make it, but the manifest and what they leave behind, there's a purpose for leaving that behind. The purpose is I want people to know what I've done, what I'm about, and I'm trying to leave my legacy, as you might call it. Uh, as most of these guys do, they will take souvenirs uh, when you talk about serial offenders to help them relive the crime uh, over and over. It's like kind of rolling in the dirt. You know, when you see an animal roll in the dirt, they just love that, that smell of it, the, of the thought of the playing with it. And that's exactly how they kind of uh, address themselves when they look at this type of behavior and actions that they take based upon the behavior. And that being said, on the other side of it, you have these individuals who seem to be this phrasing, I think it's appropriate, sexually aroused by a criminal offender. Um, perhaps they have something in their background that they have experienced that has led them to this bizarre kind of draw, this kind of allure. And I believe there is actually a word for it as well. It's, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, I'm sorry if I butcher it. Hybristophilia. And it's mean, it's meant, the meaning is to perpetuate, perpetuate an outrage against another. It's the phenomenon of an individual being sexually aroused by a criminal offender. And you find that at least you two can weigh in on this. Um, it depends on, I mean, Manson had several women who were interested in him. Um, Kaczynski, I believe, had a girlfriend while he was incarcerated. And there was a tragic story involved with that. But I'm curious to know from both of you more about that psychology. Like, Why do these, for instance, women, it seems like primarily... Why are they interested in these men? I guess it's this bad boy syndrome that I think, you know, even the Seinfeld show did like a, you know, an episode on it with George or something pretending to be the bad boy. And uh, but I think, you know, like many of those episodes and, and many of terms like, you know, bad boy uh, attraction, there, there's some there's definitely some truth to it, you know, especially with younger women, maybe have some security or insecurity issues, uh, you know, self-image issues whatever, um, and they somehow are attracted. It's one thing the kid from the other side of the tracks, I'm not sure we even use that term anymore, but that a young girl may be attracted to in senior year of high school and she moves on or something. But it's a lot different when you're an adult woman and you're writing letters to a convicted murderer in prison that you've you've never met. You've only seen him on TV or, you know, in the media somewhere and somehow you fall in love. And yeah, Kaczynski, and we can read a few of these uh, uh, entries into his autobiography down the line, but but Kaczynski never had a girlfriend. 
in his whole life uh, until he went away to prison. What does that mean? And if you look at, you know, I have a bunch of pictures. He was a decent looking guy. He was very smart. He certainly had some earning potential uh, when he was a professor at Berkeley. And uh, but then he all of a sudden just quit, dropped out of life and uh, built the cabin in Montana. And we know the rest from there. So um, it isn't like he couldn't have made uh, or developed a relationship with a woman, but he was just so odd. And he was basically socially retarded. There's a words there were those words that he used and he blamed his parents so much on that that they pushed him to achieve academically. He was brilliant, you know, going off to Harvard at 16 years of age. Um, but he, he felt he paid a steep price for that in that he just didn't know how to handle uh, his peers and the rest of society when it came to having any sort of interpersonal relationships with young men, uh, you know, just as buddies, and certainly with uh, young women when, when he was in that age frame. So very, very difficult uh, and, and situation to understand for many of us. Then you look at these uh, brothers, the Menendez brothers. I, I forget exactly. They in the 80s or 90s, they killed their parents. I'll never forget they went before the judge saying, but we're orphans. You have to feel sorry for us, Your Honor, when they killed their, when they killed their own parents. And, you know, a couple of good looking guys, I guess, you know, I can judge them that way. And women are writing them off the chart and wanting to uh, hook up with them in prison. Um, but back to Kaczynski, yeah, he developed a relationship with someone writing him. She was some sort of a journalist, and um, she actually flew out to Florence, Colorado, to visit him. Knowing the rules up front, there are no conjugal visits. And conjugal means where you can have sex, actually physically touch someone. There are no conjugal visits in the federal prison system. Um, so the best she can do is get on a phone like this. There's a big glass, inch thick glass screen. He's on the other side and they can put their hands up to the glass, but of course they're not even touching. Anyway, after multiple visits and a bunch of letters back and forth, they fell in love and they decided to get engaged. And you can get married in the federal system, but again, there's no honeymoon, not even a mini moon. And, um, and, uh, so they were planning on doing that. Then she was diagnosed with cancer. Very sad. And, um, you know, she visited a few more times that became more or less disabled. And Kaczynski started a writing campaign to different oncologists and doctors. He's trying to raise money for her. I'm not sure what her health insurance situation was. He's dealing with her parents. So for the first time, he's a concern. He has a woman in his life. He's a concerned SIGOT, significant other, boyfriend, whatever but he's losing her. So I don't feel sorry about much about Kaczynski. He's killed too many people and injured so many more, but you know, no one's happy about something like this. And certainly the poor woman who I think only in her late thirties, uh, you know, died within about a year of, uh, of getting engaged to Kaczynski. And he was supposed supposedly devastated. I have no direct knowledge of this, only what I've read in the media and some of the letters he sent to other people. So this really, uh, really messed him up. And, you know, you're in prison, you know, you're going to die in prison. You finally have a woman who's attracted to you uh, from, from a guy's perspective. And then uh, nature just deals this blow. So no doubt uh, it was very difficult for him. I wonder if he was still out, if he would have stopped and he met this woman. He most likely would have stopped the bombing, whether it would have lasted for too much longer and where he would have started re reoffending again, who knows. But uh, that's just one example with Kaczynski. But yeah, We'll come back in a few minutes, maybe. But some of the some of the things he wrote uh, about young women 
when he was a young kid in his life and how every single time something went wrong, you could see where the seeds were planted in his brain um, for all this angst and, and, uh, and vitriol down the line. Although women, women were never his victims, interestingly enough. It was always men. They could have been his victim if they picked up certain boxes or, or pieces of wood that he had designed, uh, which had a bomb inside of it. But his, his victims were all men in that regard. But, uh, but I have no doubt, and I was one of the first people to say this publicly, uh, he was an incel, involuntary celibate. We just didn't have that term back then. And, uh, and I have no doubt, uh, like Ray was saying earlier, it doesn't mean it's the one particular psychological or social issue that made this person do what he did, but it contributed heavily uh, heavily to his decision-making to start killing people, just like these mass shooters we're seeing today. Um, I think the same, the same principle with them. And I think regarding like these choices that these criminals make, it's equally interesting when you go into a prison and you see these guards who help prisoners escape, or they fall for these inmates as well. What's the appeal there as well? Like what is, I don't even know what, if this would be considered a phenomenon. I'm not sure if it's as common today or if it's more common back in the day. I would love to know more about this kind of psychology as well. Well, I can tell you, I just was in training last week with the correctional facility in the area. And we were talking about ethics. We are talking about inappropriate relationships between correctional officers and inmates. And I could tell you from my experience that it is widespread inside the prison system. And when you ask why, it goes back to what Jim said earlier. It's that bad boy uh, complex that the female has about the male inmate and going back to the Seinfeld, at least I know if I'm in a relationship with someone in prison, I know where they are every night, right? George said that. He said, hey, I know where they're at every night. I never have to worry about them running around on me. I know where they're at. By 10 o'clock, they're in bed. It's, it's a great feeling. But they get so overwhelmed with this. And I'll give you an example. I had an individual I arrested for bank robbery back in the 90s. And he was a very powerful individual inside the prison realm. He was called the Imam, which kind of runs the Muslim community with inside the prison system itself. And as that, when he would go into a prison, he had immediate power just because of his position having been previously incarcerated. So I go to visit him because there's no room in the federal detention center and we have separation orders in between other individuals that are charged in the same offense so we place them in a county prison and one of the county prisons was in upstate pennsylvania and i would run out to that prison to sit down and talk to them proffer gathering intel and i remember i went out one time and i got called into ia which is the um internal affairs division within the prison and they said can we talk to you and i said sure and they said we're having a problem with your uh offender and i says 
Okay. Why? I don't know why that's my problem. He's, he's your problem here in the prison. He says he's causing a lot of problems with the inmates. He has too much power. We're going to have to ask that he be moved. And we really had no place else to put him. So I said, let me talk to him. And he said, well, he's been in a relationship with a female correctional officer. And we found these and he got Polaroid pictures. And it's him laying on the bed in his underwear kind of like in the Old Spice commercial with his hand up here and he's laying in the bed and he said, I said, these are great. I said, someone had to take these pictures. <clears throat> Do you know who took the pictures? They said, no, we don't. I said, let me see what I could find out. And I said, I got another question. Where did he get the camera from? They said, we don't know that either. I said, let me find out that too. So I go down and talk to him and I ask him about these things and he tells me, and I said, what are you doing taking pictures? He says, well, I'm getting my Christmas card list ready, sending it out to my girls outside. I said, you got to stop it. They're going to kick you out of here. And we're going to have to send you up to Rikers Island and lock you down. You don't want that, do you? And he did not. After I leave the prison, now I have the female correction officer calling me, saying, you've got to tell them to leave me alone. And I'm thinking, ma'am. That's not my problem. I did not tell you to do what you did with him. You need to figure this out on your own. And I never asked her why she did, but he told me, he said, women love bad boys. They know it. These guys know it on the inside. They love the bad boys. It's the same thing with the females. With that, it's the same thing with the males and with the female inmates. They're engaged in relationships with these female inmates. What they don't understand is that in prison, it's a very routine situation. Things don't change all that often. Everything is consistent day in and day out. So what happens is the, the other COs are in the process of gathering information. They're in the business of gathering intelligence. So if somebody knows, and it's very, very small, you know how they say the world is a small place? It's even smaller in prison. When you do something, everybody's going to know about it. So if you sleep with an inmate, every other inmate's going to know about it, and it's going to affect how you can do your job. And it just continues to perpetrate with these guys, and it's, it's amazing to see it continues to happen. And the draw is just as it is on the outside. If someone shows you affection in any way and the flirting, it just, people are enticed by that. Whether you're a man or a woman, you're enticed by it. You're more enticed by it if you don't get those things anywhere else. So if you're not getting it in an outside relationship, you become even more susceptible to those things inside of a prison. Sort of the feeling of, I've known, I've had female friends who want what they cannot have. Just that ever, you know, reaching hand they cannot grasp, you know, it's, it's this bizarre kind of curiosity that I feel that a lot of women specifically have when it comes to being attracted towards a man. And I think with your reference toward that 
bad boy kind of complex. And I think it also has to deal with the common sort of daddy issues, uh, psychology as well. Perhaps it's this very complicated kind of psychological issue. And perhaps they're trying to just fill up this void that they have as well. Um, but it's, it's very interesting. Like I've brought up this small world that the prison is. And I'm also curious to know about just the hierarchy that occurs, how I've, I mean, I've never been in one myself, knock on wood. Um, but, uh, I think there is an interest there. And when, for instance, there's an inmate first day in prison where you see other different gangs, how am I going to survive? I, I suppose it depends on what kind of prison it is. If it's a maximum security prison, um, I'm just curious about the hierarchy and what you two have to say about that. I'll start a little bit here. Uh, just to follow what Ray was saying, <clears throat> it's one thing for these guys, these inmates to use the women officers for uh, you know their sexual toys, but they also use them to escape. Uh, about five years ago in New York State, one of the state prisons, um, two guys somehow convinced this woman. I don't know if she was sleeping with both of them in storage rooms or janitorial rooms or whatever, but um, they definitely got it on with her that she got them some tools and basically helped them escape. And they were on the lam for about two to three weeks. Uh, they caught her, I think. Well, they identified her right away. They arrested her, meaning the police did. And uh, one escaped inmate was eventually killed by the state police. Another one was recaptured and put in prison again. And just about a year and a half ago, somewhere down south, Alabama, Mississippi, a woman, she was a pretty high like deputy warden or something. And she hooked up with some psychopath who was in and out of prison his whole life. He was in there for a while and they wound up escaping. Um, he, uh, She helped him escape. And it was so predictable. Anyone who knows this this business like Ray and I do, she was going to wind up dead. No ands, if, or buts. And, and, and she did wind up dead and he was, he was arrested. Uh, so Ray does more work in prisons than I, than I do. I've certainly visited my share of inmates over the years, but I'll just start off very basic in terms of prison hierarchy. If uh, obviously if you belong to a gang, you have built in protection there and people will join gangs just to have that protection. But, uh, from a generic perspective, if you're a cop killer, you're pretty much at the at the height of the of the uh, of the ladder in prison in terms of um, you know, your power, your reputation, things like that. If you're a sexual offender, especially of little kids, you're at the bottom of the ladder, and uh, and those people have a real tough time in prison. Not too much of us have a lot of empathy for them, but uh, nonetheless, that's how. The basic prison uh, hierarchy is set up. And of course, gangs and, and other factors kick in there too. And I know Ray does a lot of training with Department of Correction folks. So uh, Ray, you can discuss uh, where everyone fits in the middle perhaps there. Yeah, Jim, you're, you're, you're kind of right on target here. There's a numerous clicks within the prison system and it's based upon much like it is in society. You have the black gangs, you have the white gangs, the white supremacists, you have the Latin kings. Now you have some Muslim gangs that are starting to perform inside, but most of the time the leaders of those gangs are well insulated. Uh, they're not the people that are on the front or that are 
taking the brunt of things that are occurring. They have people that are set up as barriers to protect them. So it never gets to them, but they're still calling the shots. Now, when Jim talks about these females and males that are involved in relationships, I want to take it a step further. Not as it just sexual and helping people break out, but how do you think they get things inside of a prison? I mean, they're used to bring drugs in, to bring other paraphernalia in that actually supports. They, a lot of times they get things that they could, could never get on the outside, but they're able to get on the inside because it's just available. And these prison guards are not paid much. So they use this as to supplement their income. So it's kind of, if you remember the Shawshank Redemption, one of the things that he wanted was a hammer because he wanted to do um, little chess pieces and he liked to work with stone. And then he found out that the hammer could actually help him dig a hole in the wall, which it actually did for him. But it's, I'll give you an example. I had a guy that was head of a gang in the city of Chester, Pennsylvania. And we put him out in one of the county prisons. And about 1030 at night, I get a phone call. And it comes to my cell phone. And I pick it up. It's a number. And I go, hello. And the guy says, hey, Ray, how you doing? So I say to this guy, I says, what, uh, how, are you, how are you making this phone call? <laughs> and he goes, oh, I got a cell phone. I said, how did you get the cell phone? One of the guards brought it in for me. Really? I said, that is so cool. I'm telling him this so he gives me more information. And in about a week, I'm going to put this together and lock up the guard that did this. Or at least have the county do that. Well, I'm sitting and talking to him. So he said, well, how did you, how were you able to get it? He says, well, I have my girlfriend on the outside. Give this guy a pair of Jordans. And he brought the cell phone, cell phone in. I said, oh, wow. I said, that is neat. I said, what kind of Jordans? I'm getting into all the things that don't matter just to kind of build up my trust with them. So I said, what else What else are they doing? He goes, I get alcohol, I get marijuana, I get coke. And I said, he goes, I'm like a guy in here if you need something. I said, wow, that is so cool. He says, I have three different guys that are doing this for me. I said, that's great. I says, he goes, you know, Ray, uh, I actually have conjugal visits after hours, like from midnight to like three in the morning out in the parking lot of the prison. And I said, really? I said, they let you out? And he goes, yeah, with my girlfriend. She comes up in the car. He says, it's great. He says, I don't mind being here at all. This is a great place to be. So here's individuals telling me this, and I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> here's people that are locked up, and we're taking away their rights. Or are we? Are we making it even easier for them? Many of the offenders, when they go into prison, don't mind going to prison because all of their friends are locked up too. So when they go into these county prisons, even state prisons, it's like a reunion. And they feel very comfortable being inside these prisons with these individuals because it's like coming home. Yeah, I got caught with this or I got caught with that. They're, it's It's amazing what they tell us once they're on the inside. It's not that bad here. For you, me, and Jim, it'd be like, I don't know if I could handle this. But these guys and gals, they think it's great. Wow.
So it's basically, like you said, a mini reunion where they get to reestablish their their power in a smaller setting. A tangential sort of story I experienced in my New York FBI days, I was assisting a rookie agent uh, bring some bank robber out of the MCC, Manhattan Correctional Center, where he was being held on trial. He's cooperating. He's going to give some information about some fellow bank members. And he just asked as part of the deal, could his girlfriend be in, you know, come and see him that day. So we kind of set up, we took him out um, and uh, into the U.S. Attorney's Office, Southern District of New York, brought him up. He was in cuffs the whole time. And there's his girlfriend. And they, you know, they, they, they thank you. They put him in the office, uh, closed the door. There's no way he can go anywhere. We're like 17th floor of this, uh, you know, high rise building. And I'm just outside talking with some one of the attorneys I know, and uh, and the rookie agent comes back to me. He's red. His eyes are like this. Fitz, Fitz, my inmate's having sex on the floor with his girlfriend. What do I do? <laughs> I said, are there any doors he can escape in there? No. I said, is he cooperating, giving you good info? Yeah. Let him finish. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, I said, you handle it. And uh, he gave him like two more minutes. I have a feeling the guy probably didn't need that much uh, uh, that much time to do what he wanted to do. And next thing you know, the conjugal visit, which we didn't purposely set up, but uh, I noticed she was wearing a dress. Who knows? We don't have to get graphic here, but she may have come prepared for this uh, quick rendezvous. And um, and uh, so he had his little conjugal visit. Boy, did he give did he give us some good information after that, which all proved to be valid. So um, there's a factor which, uh, which certainly could uh, contribute in that regard to getting more information out of these guys in prison. But uh, I, 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 we'd have to have it very much controlled. Of course, now there's these guys, and we don't have to get into this, the whole issue here, maybe another episode, but there are apparently biological men going into prison and determining at the very early levels to transition to a woman and many of these prison uh, administrations, oh, okay, if you say so, and they're putting them in women's uh, holding facilities, detention centers, prisons, and a lot of these guys are sex offenders, they're rapists, they're ch- child molesters, and now they're they're in this target-rich environment, uh, and and they're, I'm sure some of it's consensual, but uh, they're having sex with the female inmates, but they are also raping these women too, and. Uh, so these things have to be considered. So it's a, it's a complex, um, you know, murky soup of things that go on in the artificial environment that we call, you know, penal institutions and prisons. You know, we don't want the, the island prisons from the movie Papillon and, you know, in the French, uh, you know, the French and other countries used to run or, or the English shipping all their inmates all over to Australia as a uh, it was a penal colony. The whole continent was basically a penal colony. So um, I'm glad those days are over. So, um, but um, my, my, my theory about prisons has been um, cut everyone's time in half. Sounds like I'm a real liberal, progressive guy. Get them out of prison sooner. But no, cut their time in half, but they get single cells like Florence, Colorado, the supermax. And uh, and they're in there 23 hours a day. 
they make it weight room benefits, whatever. That way it cuts out all the gang situations there too. So you're cutting their time down, but you're making them really think about what they did to earn their time in there. So uh, um, it would take expanding the prisons, making them larger if you're going to give people single cells. But that's how they do it in Florence, Colorado, the Supermax, where Kaczynski was for a, month, a number of years, along with some other bad guys. And uh, I think ultimately um, we'd have a better uh, parole program. These people got out with that kind of uh stay in prison as opposed to just these wide open general population where all these gangs are formed and uh, all kinds of bad stuff happens. I'd like to get your take on this as well, Ray, before we close, um, we can end with this uh, discussion um, regarding the prison system and the justice system. That being said, what are your thoughts on how most prisons in this country function, at least from what you both have experienced. Do you feel like they could be better? Do you feel like it's it should be the current state of it is fine or you see room for improvement? I, you know, I think you, you say function, it's more of a dysfunction. I mean, um, when you look at the prison system itself, the guards, the COs, both on the federal level and the state level and the local level, they just maintain order. The prisons are run by the inmates. They, they are. They, they have their own justification, punishment systems. They have everything to do it. You, you're just there to monitor it. That's it. It's, it's like watching a zoo. You don't control what goes on inside the cage, but you can control what goes on outside the cage. It's nothing more than that. It's a housing unit. You're warehousing people. That's kind of what it is. It's a very good point. I'm going to let Ray finish with the prison part, but I've kind of uh, promised a few times in our talk today about reading at least one clip from Kaczynski's early yes. days. So since he is still in prison and we're kind of on this topic and theme, let's go back to his early days. This is very early, actually, a little segment I found. And this is how, so think of a serial killer, which is what Kaczynski turned to be. But even as a 10-year-old boy, this is how he was thinking about a young girl and there's plenty of examples as he went off to high school, uh, Harvard, University of Michigan, and even later in life. So we'll just end it, uh, just, a, just a few paragraphs here. So this is from Kaczynski's autobiography that he never uh, expected anyone to read, but we took it as being important about how he related to uh, women. And again, this whole incel concept, even though we didn't use the term back then. So here we go. When I was 10 years old in fifth grade, there was a girl in the class named Darlene. She had long black hair and was beautiful. There was another girl in class, a blonde, who was nothing because she had a dull, stolid personality. But Darlene was something special because she had a lively, saucy personality. In some way, I forget how, there developed a kind of war in the class, a running verbal conflict that went on intermittently for weeks or months, one side consisting nominally of the girls and the other side consisting of the boys. But by and by, I began to notice a very disgusting phenomenon. One by one, I detected the leading boys in the class holding soft, sweet conversations with Darlene. The boys' end of the war soon collapsed. The little vixen was reaching a certain age where she was beginning to feel her power and she was using it. I was filled with contempt for these guys who had permitted themselves to be conquered so easily. A few days before, 
They had hated Darlene, and now they were kissing their erstwhile enemy's ass. The truth is that I was beginning to feel certain soft temptations toward Darlene myself, but I refused to admit this to myself. I was sternly determined not to be conquered like the others had been. I forced myself to hate her. And he goes on a bit about Darlene and, and the other guys in class. But you can see this vitriol and this vehemence that he was building up against not only the girls who he really didn't approach at all. There's so many stories near from across the aisle at high school in Harvard, at uh, Michigan. He's just staring at these young women and maybe they'd smile as they get up and walk away. And he'd go months and just have this fantasy about them. And then he never would approach them. And then he'd see her talking to some other guy and he'd want to kill the guy. I mean, he didn't do it, but this is where the seeds of all this, uh, of all this anxiety and hatred were, uh, you know, began their fomentation process. And, uh, and it's nice to have something like this. That's why in an earlier episode, we're saying, you know, put the manifesto or whatever it's being called of this Nashville killer out there. If they're generous enough, and if you're not, watching this, I have air quotes up, but if they're generous enough to leave this kind of writing behind, let's get it out there so the public knows what to look for, what to keep an eye out for, for future mass murderers, serial killers, whatever they may be. And uh, we owe it to our own society to do this. I know the my old unit, the behavioral analysis unit, supposedly has these documents now. Maybe they're listening. Maybe some bosses out there in Nashville. Get this thing out there. The public has a right to see it. We want to know how future killers are thinking. So when you put the signs up, the billboards, the newspaper ads, whatever, see something, say something, let us know what the hell to look for. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. We need to be prepared. We need to, in order to prevent another massacre, another shooting, something, we need to understand why, or at least to a certain extent. And like you said, by reading the manifesto, by understanding the more we'd be, we'd have more of a chance to prevent another horrible tragedy from occurring. Yeah, so yeah, hopefully. And did you have any more to say regarding the prison system, Ray? I know we had to kind of jump back and forth a bit. Okay, great. Well, if there is nothing else, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Ray and Fitz, and thank you so much for your insight uh, regarding today's several topics. I hope that our viewers and our listeners have uh, at least become more enlightened and enriched and educated by our topics about Kaczynski. And of course, the most important, what is more important, wheat versus fry, you know, that kind of breakfast, that's always an important discussion. That being said, uh, thank you again for joining us today. Uh, please feel free to follow us on social media at Cold Red Podcast. And until next time, stay present and stay alert.